0: series of Discourses. Um, Now in the beginning of the season I did three introductory Discourses about what is the Spiritual Aspiration and therefore what are the Spirituality Methods. Second, about what is Tantric Yoga, the field in which we are. And third, last time, about what is Agama Yoga in the field of this Tantric Yoga so that to give orientation to people about what you can do or not do in this school. Um, Those lectures may exist from previous years, already uploaded on the internet, on the YouTube channel or whatever it is, and therefore if you want to, if you are not here in January and want to listen to those things, of course go and listen, It's very good orientation for you, generally, in the field of spirituality. And today, once I finish those three lectures, I will continue with the lectures which I interrupted in the last season when we were doing a series of discourses about the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This is something which always puzzles people who haven't been in Agama for a while. This mixture between the words, actions, and teachings of Jesus and yoga are always surprising people. There ought to be a satsang somewhere in the lore of Agama, which is called Jesus in the eyes of yoga. Jesus as seen by the yogis. Uh, Go and see that video, because it will clarify, I cannot repeat every time for newcomers, why, in my opinion, Jesus is very, very significant from the standpoint of modern yoga, from the standpoint of the yogis. Already in the 19th century and in the 20th century, most of the yogis of India embraced Jesus like one of their own, and uh, they realized the value, they realize the connections which existed there. That has even pushed some people to create those traditions, books, documentaries are out there, which say that probably Jesus, in the 18 years of his biography, which are not accounted for, probably he lived in India, and uh, much of his teaching is connected to Indian teachings, and all that stuff which comes together with it, which comes out of it. I'm not going to go there, Um, this introduction I consider is made. For a reason or another, Jesus seems to be very, very, very much fitting with yoga, and that's why trying to understand what Jesus did, like how did he see things, how did he act, and also trying to understand his words, his parables, his actions, are very much backfiring on yoga. As most of you know, in yoga we have a part of our discipline called Yama and niyama, the so-called morals and ethics of yoga, which are very important and they are about harmonizing one's daily existence. And of course yoga helps you to control your mind, your emotions and so on. But the, the field of action is your daily life, such is about nonviolence, truthfulness and all the great values of uh, morality and ethics, and that's why many of the things which Jesus teaches, because as most of you know, Jesus hardly teaches, especially those of you who did read some of the words of Jesus and some of the gospels, Jesus is not teaching a technology directly like in yoga. Like you want to have more awareness. Therefore, you have to open your crown chakra, and to open your crown chakra, you better do some headstand, because the headstand is good for your crown chakra. Jesus is not using too much physical methods and so on. Most of the things which are mentioned that people were doing around him was fasting, refraining from food, and partly sometimes refraining from liquid, and prayer. Fasting and prayer are the two things which are mentioned, which of course, they are not, they are maybe part of, uh, fasting could be part of Kriya Yoga or Purification Yoga, fasting can be part of Tapasya in general of doing Tapasya. Uh, Prayer is typically a characteristic of Bhakti Yoga, for those who are interested in Bhakti Yoga, and therefore, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus did not teach in the way of Matsyendra and Goraksha with asanas, mudras, bandhas. He never said, well, if you are emotionally distraught like this, then you should do dhyana bandhas or God knows what other advice He would have given. Because that was not part of His teaching. We know that he, Jesus did not even teach anything about the sexual part of Tandra. Jesus is coming from a tradition and he teaches in a part of the world where there is no reference to any form of sacred sexuality or things like that and that is why Jesus in general teaches brahmacharya under the form of celibacy. So of course there are very many peculiarities that we have to take into account when we translate what Jesus is teaching in his environment to the people who are in that background and how that can cross-fertilize with yoga. Like, is there something which Jesus says or does which can make your yoga practice better tomorrow? That's why we do these uh, satsangs about Jesus in this period of time. I did some Jesus lectures long, long time ago, more than 10 years ago, and about the first two Gospels which were very appreciated, like people evaluated that listening to those satsangs, it gave them a lot of aspiration, because this is one of the real powers of the soul that Jesus exhibits. Jesus gives to people aspiration. I don't know if all of you know what aspiration is. It's coming in the day 23 of Agama. There is a lecture, a grand lecture called Ishvara Pranidana, which talks about this aspiration and it's a super important spiritual value, perhaps the most important spiritual value for people who want to go deep and find themselves and find the great truths of existence. And uh, Jesus is really good at generating aspiration. He has such an attitude, he manifests in such a way that he like shines with aspiration And people get always very moved and very inspired. Also, as some of you might know, Jesus is also very uncompromising. He is not politically correct. He doesn't try to please everybody. For example, when we analyze the activity of Paramahamsa Yogananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda was... uh, practicing a lot of charming of the crowd. He went to America in the 1930s and there, in those days, he was considered a colored guy He was considered a crow coming from India and the people were having some, you know, the white supremacist philosophy people, they were having qualms of taking great teachings from some colorful guy coming from India, so, and therefore, and there was a lot of fundamentalistic Christianity still going on in the United States in those days, so uh, Yogananda had to leave a charm offensive where he would himself uh, mention a lot of things about Jesus. There's a whole series of lectures of Yogananda, which is today grouped under a volume, or two-volume book called The Second Coming of Christ where he talked about Christ from the standpoint of yoga, quite a bit. (coughs) He was not very much educated in esoteric traditions of Christianity, but uh, he was trying always to interpret things from the standpoint of yoga. So, in this way, uh, we can see that Yogananda, for example, (coughs) was on a charm tour because he was living in an adverse environment, and he had to do these things in a certain way. But Jesus, when he came 2,000 years ago in the Israel of those days, he just splashed it completely. You know, like he didn't try to be compromising politically correct than anything. He, whenever he saw something which was rotten, he called it rotten. You know, he just didn't... Uh, didn't manage very well his words, you know, he was not doing, he was not having PR consultants or others, you know, he just went and splashed it and provoked so much that actually in three years and a half he managed to get himself condemned, crucified, blamed, mistrusted, mocked, whatever, a lot of things happened to him, as you probably know, and that was because precisely of these two things. One uncompromising, things are black and white, you know, don't tell, him, like he said, he who is not with me is against me. No. Try to transpose that to other circumstances, you know, like where would that live if I would say, he who is not with me is against me, especially in the present circumstances of time. right? So in this way, like Jesus is just cutting mercilessly through things, he doesn't accept any half measure compromise, but at the same time, this generates so much aspiration. It's like people said, okay, this is a man who really is not like, either he is the devil camouflaged in a white robe, or if not, you know, either this man belongs into a mental institution, or he is God walking the face of the earth, you know? There is no way of splitting things with the behavior like that one of Jesus. So, uh, that's why, uh, again, reading and uh, getting some inspiration from the part of Jesus, as the great yogis have seen it, I'm not the first one who authentified Jesus in the light of yoga. It started with Ramakrishna in the 19th century, who prayed to almost all the religions and all the lineages and all the grand masters that he could know about and he unequivocally confessed that the results which he got from praying to Jesus were the greatest results that he got in his spiritual practice. Which is like, why would Ramakrishna say that when he was not a Christian and he did not become a Christian? So, uh, we know, I know, that uh, uh, bringing a bit of Jesus just for consideration, Just thinking, you know, like I'm doing yoga, but also the words of Jesus are not disappearing because of that. And bringing that, uh, it brings to people a lot of inspiration and it arouses a lot of things in the hearts of people. So, um, in 2018, I got to the point of finishing the first four chapters on the Gospel of Luke. I don't even know in advance how many chapters it has. So I finished the first four chapters, and I'm straight going into the fifth chapter. Of course, there was a lot There were a lot of things, and uh, our people tell me that we have those recordings of what has been said in the previous satsangs. Some of them might be uploaded, some of them might need some editing, and then they will be uploaded. And by the way of this, if anyone of them are not talking about high level editing. We are just talking about putting an introduction and an end to it. If any one of you is good with video editing, talk to Adinaz and he will uh, uh, give you to edit some of these satsangs from 2018 which can be then uploaded so that many can benefit from them. So straightforward, let's go into further stories and words and actions about what Jesus is supposed to have done in those days. One day, in I'm starting the chapter number 5. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the Word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and to the people from the boat. Uh, Quite original, the first thing which this gives to me is like Jesus was always crowded by people. Today I'm talking to you with a microphone, and then it's recorded on video, and other people can watch it from their own. But imagine if I would sit here surrounded by 300 people, and have no microphone, and have a slightly sore throat as I do, and how would I shout to make myself heard by 300 people, not to mention 3,000 people or more? And therefore you can imagine that the conditions in those days were not always very good. And uh, Jesus was always trying to kind of make a point like talking and people would hear. Otherwise, I'm sure some of you have seen this parodic movie made by Monty Python 20 years ago called The Life of Brian, where there is thousands of people listening to Jesus And most of them don't hear a word of what he says, but they hear it in a mutilated way. So when Jesus says, blessed be the peacemakers, in the back they hear, blessed be the cheesemakers. So you can, I mean, that irony is welcome, because it actually points to the fact that what were the real conditions in those days, if you say that Jesus spoke to 5,000 people or something like that. So, original, you can see he's unconventional. He simply said, why not I talk from a boat, which is like 10 meters away from the shore, so that people cannot crowd me and push me and so on, and I can have some space and people will be in front of me and then I can speak to them. That's quite creative. You know, it's like we haven't heard about others who did it in the same way. So it gives us a little bit of a picture about Jesus looking always for solutions to make things work in his own way. And he taught from the boat, as I am teaching from a dais, so you can all see me and I can see you. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything but because you say so, I will let down the net. That's, first of all, a very good attitude from Simon. Simon, later called Peter, is the one who became the boss of the apostles. When Jesus died, the team of the apostles had a sort of a unofficial chief, which was the man who had the biggest manipura, the biggest ajna, the biggest leadership, the sort of a person who maybe was uh, number 8 on the Enneagram typology, a person who was a natural-born leader. This person was Simon Peter, who was also one of the oldest of the Apostles. He may have been in those days in his 40s already, he was older than Jesus himself. And uh, Simon Peter, eventually, Jesus said, I'll give you the keys to the Kingdom of Heaven and all that, which create all this mythology that Peter is at the gates of heaven, and if you enter in paradise, it's Peter who accepts you in, and all that. And uh, remember, at this time, he had just met Jesus. He was a fisherman, illiterate. He was older than Jesus. You know what they say, that you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. It's very difficult to start spirituality in your 40s or in your 50s when you are already in your midlife crisis and you are already a bit cynical and tired and your ojas has decreased to a certain extent and so on and then you are supposed to be like a 20-year-old puppy or like a teenager starting spirituality and having a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of energy and a lot of aspiration, and it's more difficult. So Peter was having a lot of internal conflict. We are told that in many ways, by many things which he said or did, that he loved Jesus, obviously, but it was difficult for him to change, to transform. He didn't have a spiritual 20 years before, like he was already honed in some way. Even when Jesus got arrested and tried, Peter is typically the one who said, I don't know that man, I was not with him, so he was a coward directly. No, so this shows that, now you cannot expect that Peter, because today there is a St. Peter Basilica in the middle of Rome in the Vatican, automatically Peter was a super-spiritual person during his, those years before the crucifixion of Jesus, and before his enlightenment, and before his transformation, therefore. And that's why you can realize that Simon Peter was a bit of a rude fisherman in his 40s or something. People then, they lived 45 years, 50 years, 55 years. The life expectation was very small compared with today. So, Peter was not a flexible, adaptable young man and still when Jesus told him he said, we have been working the whole night and I'm pissed off and depressed because we didn't catch anything and we are just washing our nets and now you want us to work again and you are, you don't even know anything about fishing, but at the best we can assume that maybe because your father was a carpenter, maybe you know something about carpentry. But now you just come here like a pompous ass and tell me, get back to sea and so on, it's like. But he did, you see, the humbleness, the surrender, that's a beautiful attitude. Because he simply says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets." Like he is still humble. He is a good material, this Simon Peter. Because although he has a lot of handicaps from a spiritual standpoint, he still can submit his manikura. He can put down his manikura and be humble and simply say, yes, okay, if you say, like, I believe it's going to be shit anyway, but because you say so, let's do this stupid thing, which you say. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sing. This is an interesting fact. You see the wisdom of Jesus. Like, what does Peter need? Okay, Peter, 20 years later, he went to Rome, and when the Roman soldiers wanted to crucify him, because he died by crucifixion as well, he became so humble. And he said, I cannot die the same death of Jesus. I've seen Jesus dying of crucifixion. And now you want to crucify me? It's like too much of an honor. And, you know, the Roman soldiers obliged, and being a bunch of brutal idiots, they crucified him upside down to make the crucifixion more painful, more
1: horrible. You know? Like, so what did
0: Peter need 20 years later? to die more horribly than Jesus, you know? Like he wanted to sacrifice himself to a level which is inconceivable because he was a coward at the time of Jesus and this now he wanted to go in hyper drive for this. So he got really motivated and awakened spiritually. But at this time, what did he need? He was still not into the game. He was a fisherman who met with a wonder maker. He met with a man who was supposed to be a prophet, uh, some rabbi, some sort of great teacher and so on. And he had a family, he had children, and he needed fish, he needed money, he needed, you know, he was a hard worker. And you see, Jesus has this kind of things. I remember I had a friend who was very much into Chinese Taoism and he was going and meeting some Taoist teachers and he said, if when I meet with them they talk to me about spirituality and uh, God, first thing, I don't trust them. When they tell me things about daily life, like realize that they are grounded into something. There is a beautiful documentary called, uh, if I remember correctly, The Yogis of Tibet, or, uh, no, it's the Arnaud Jardín documentary, which is called uh, The Message of the Tibetans. It's an excellent documentary from the 1960s, uh, which we can play in the school for some of our spiritual movie evenings, if you shall desire so. Really remarkable documentary. And uh, there they see the meeting of two very big Tibetan yogis in the 1960s, they met with each other, and they said, what are they talking about when two big Tibetan yogis meet? And they said, definitely not about yoga. Because like yoga, they do full time, that's what their life is about. But they can also refer very easily to the daily life. Like a Tibetan lama visiting some villagers, would not tell them, what is your faith in Buddha like lately? He would maybe ask them, how are your crops? Have you got enough food in the village? Like referring to the needs of the daily life, because when people are persecuted in their daily life needs, it's very difficult to focus on spirituality. Very few people can do that. And then you say, people have no faith people have no... but they don't have any food, you know, and how should they have faith when they don't have food? Very few people are ready to give up food for their faith. Those are the champions of spirituality. But the normal person is dependent on the needs of their daily life, and that's why even Jesus, you know, He speaks and speaks, and then He says, let's get down to earth. What is teaching you guys? Oh! What is eating you is the fact that you don't have food. You didn't manage to catch fish, and you are hungry, and you can't pay your taxes, and you can't do this, and you can't. So let's first relieve you on that point. You know, let's first make your daily life a little bit better, so then we can talk about God. Thus, uh, it's a very beautiful thing, which shows a wisdom which is integral. It shows a wisdom which is ecological, which is holistic, because, you know, it's very easy to preach some extreme sectarian and uh, fundamentalistic type of spirituality, but it has to live in the world. People have to be able to live their daily lives and practice the spirituality hand in hand with it, like the wisdom of Gupta and the yogis of Kashmir, who said the person can pursue, side by side, spiritual aims, as well as mundane aims, because the daily life has to continue in one way or another. The second thing which uh, interests me in this paragraph about Jesus is, I don't know if you realize, of course you realize once I say it, but Jesus actually sponsored, personally, directly, the killing of animals. Jesus actually encouraged, and not only encouraged, made it work, fishing. And these people killed 500 fishes, or how many there were in their boats there, to eat them and to sell them. So as you can see, whatever they say about Jesus There is a long story that Jesus apparently multiplied bread and fish and he was eating and therefore he was not 100% vegetarian. He was a fish vegetarian but not um, strictly speaking vegetarian. And there are scholars in Aramaic language who point very clearly like in the Gospel of Peace and in the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles who point to the fact that the word in Aramaic used for fish is a word which can be translated in Greek as well as side dish or vegetables. Like you have a beefsteak and near it you put some green peas, some beans, and some french fries. That kind of side thing to your beefsteak is called by the same word as fish. And actually scientists, scholars, Say that you can't even say 100% that Jesus was multiplying fish or feeding people with fish. But on this episode of the fishing, it's very difficult to turn this one around. Like either Jesus himself ate fish or not, which is still unclear according to scholarship. Nevertheless, he went with Peter and made him catch and therefore kill hundreds or maybe thousands of fishes which is very relevant for the wisdom of Jesus. Maybe Jesus visited India for 10 years. Maybe being in India, he was very, very inspired by vegetarianism in India. The difference between India and the Palestinian, Palestine area, the Romans called Israel area, Palestine in general. So that's why I'm speaking geographically, not politically, like the state of Israel. When I say Palestine, I mean that geographical area. When in the area of Palestine, today, they have Thai workers that irrigate and produce green peppers, bell peppers and other things in the south of Israel. There's a lot of vegetable industry happening in the desert today in Israel simply because they desalinate water from the sea, they have all sorts of pumping and irrigation, and they can grow vegetables in the desert. 2,000 years ago, this did not exist. So in the desert, the food was extremely scarce. When the Jews wandered with Moses to Sinai and the southern part of today's Israel, they were, they were said the legends tell us that they were eating manna. Mana being a white powder, which was depositing like a crust, like a crystalline thing, on the rocks. And they were just scratching it with knives and eating that powder, whatever it was, like a sort of a divine food coming from heaven. they didn't have vegetables and all that. So the situation of food in that part of the world even when the Jews were living, they had settled in that area and they had whatever farming they had, was that without fish they would have an incomplete diet. They would not be able. Today, if you live in Israel, you can go to Makro or whatever they have in Israel, Tesco or whatever, and you can eat a few, you can buy yourself a few kiwis from New Zealand, and a few carrots imported from China, or God knows from where. In those days, it was not like this. And that's why people had to live on the resources of the land which was there. And therefore, please remember this idea which we always highlight in our lectures on vegetarianism. The yogis think that you should be vegetarian. And today... In the 21st century, with Tesco just 8 kilometers from here, you can. It's easy. You can even have soya meat, tolis meat, and so on, so that you can delude your taste. You, you, You cheat your taste, but in case you have any nostalgia for sausages or something like this. But in those days, and in some special conditions, it did not exist. India is a tropical country with just as a few desert areas in Gujarat or some, but for the rest is a very fertile land. That's why in India, agriculture to vegetables is very easy, and thus they have a lot of the rice and vegetables and all that stuff. So in 2000 years ago in India, it would be easy to be vegetarian relatively. Then, uh, In Palestine, in those days, it would be almost impossible. The same thing was valid in Tibet. In the 12th century Tibet, the great lamas and yogis, they were fighting hard to convince the local population to give up eating meat, because meat was very much an alternative in Tibet. And there are actually many examples of great lamas and yogis, Milarepa himself included, who at one time or another confess about eating some meat. Because there was nothing else. There was nothing else. So, I could insist, but I'm sure you are smart and you can do your own research, and therefore remember that Jesus himself, who represents the Divine Consciousness in this story, is agreeing to the fact that nature And all the food chains on this planet, they are here to serve you, to serve us. So if your life depends on eating fish or something like this, it's okay. The divine nature knows that you are supposed to be the top of the pyramid. And because you are the top of the pyramid, everything belongs to you. In many religions, it is highlighted that man is the master of the earth. Only God is about the human being. The human being has been given the planet earth as a garden. And everything in this garden belongs to you, including animals that you might have to eat. That's why in Chinese Taoism and others, they don't care so much about this. And there are many religions in which a little bit of meat-eating, fish-eating, and something, is okay. It's just that the yogis say that if you can live without killing, because you are killing indirectly to pay for the meat, you are still killing, if you can live without killing, it would be preferable that you do so. Like, don't abuse. Just because you can pay some money and have animals killed in your name, Don't do it, if it's possible. Don't do it just because you like it. Oh, I cannot live with a little bit of pork. If I don't have some pork from time to time, like you are just an animal, you are just a beast, you are just a leopard or a tiger who drools for some pork. And that's not the right justification. It's not the good excuse. But if you would say there was absolutely no food except some pork, Okay? I don't want, God says, I don't want you to die. I want you to pray, to meditate, to reach enlightenment. So, if to sustain your life physiologically, you need to have some fish, or you need to have some pork, go ahead. Ah, that there are many things about the fact that meat might not be so healthy for your digestive tract. And we can discuss about those and they are very controversial and they are way beyond our purpose here, but it is still interesting that Jesus, who is very black and white, who is uncompromising and who represents divine consciousness, he proclaims himself, he says I and my father are one and the same, as you can't be more deliberate than that. And when you say that, there's kind of no comment. Either you crucify the man or you bow down to that man because it's like there's no alternative. When he says that, this man who says I'm God, he actually condones fishing and what comes out of fishing, like consuming fish, selling fish, and so on. We don't know if there were other animals being killed, like chickens, fowl, and you know, other things. But um, it is very relevant. I am coming from the angle of Indian yoga and my gurus taught me to be vegetarian and it's perfectly possible and easy to be vegetarian these days in a very satisfactory way you can be vegetarian. And therefore, I don't have a problem with that and therefore we recommend in the yoga courses as much as possible, go vegetarian. Ovo-lacto-vegetarian, lacto-vegetarian, vegan, or whatever your brand of vegetarian is. And some people would say, but what if I eat a little bit of fish? I would say it's a bit of a luxury. You are eating fish not because you would die without fish, you are eating fish because you like eating fish. There is a huge difference between having to eat fish or die or just doing it with a smile on your face like ha ha ha, may the fish die so I can have some fun Saturday evening, you know. It's It's a thing of morality and it's a thing of what you decide to do about your life but we can see that in one of the adverse geographical areas of the earth. Like in Tibet, some Lamas, as I said, Jesus is not apparently preaching 100% vegetarianism. It's not part of the Jewish culture. Maybe it was in India, but in that culture it was not. And Jesus is not making a fuss about that. So it's an interesting point there. And so they fished so much that also, how did he do it? You realize that if Jesus says, I am God, and maybe that sounds a little bit awkward for those of you who look at it in a Christian way, but try to think for those of you who ever studied this in Agama or somewhere in this world, try to think about the angle of Kashmiri Shaivism. That everything, everybody, every object, Every animal and every being is Shiva and is endowed secretly somewhere with the Shiva consciousness. So, Shiva is the Lord of the universe. Shiva is me and you. Shiva is the fishes in the fishes and in the animals. Everything is is Shiva. So, if I eat fish, then Shiva eats Shiva in the universe of Shiva for everything is Shiva. So even in a monistic way, it doesn't make such a big difference when people are vegetarian, they are for other reasons, which we highlight in our lecture on vegetarianism, like not accumulating too much animal frequencies in their aura, detox in some uh, uh, manners and so on. But we can see here this liberal, universal, holistic approach in which it actually, from the standpoint of Jesus, it doesn't matter so much. That's not the thing which matters for Jesus. And he says, go ahead, your diet here is made of fish. Without fish, you wouldn't have enough proteins or whatever you wouldn't have. And therefore, eat your fish and listen to the word of God. But it's interesting that God offers Himself, like Jesus says, the whole name try to realize, Jesus says the whole nature on the planet Earth, let's not go on other planets and in other galaxies, let's stay just on planet Earth, the whole nature on planet Earth is me, is me, Jesus, and it belongs to me. And if I take a part of myself and give it to Simon Peter. It's just like God could simply call the fishes and say, "Come, my dears, you are going to be caught, killed, and eaten, because you belong to me." In the similar way, people who did some sacrifices which involved animal life, they gave a blessing. In India, they have had they had Ashvamedha sacrifice of a horse done only by kings. And they blessed the soul of the horse that was sacrificed so that in its next incarnation it will get a higher incarnation, maybe even as a human being, just because its body was used for a ritual to satisfy some needs, some political and social needs of the king. So they accepted to sacrifice a horse giving him a prize, giving him a compensation, you would eat a fish and like Jesus you would say, I know that some of my children fishes will die today for Peter and his brothers, but uh, may the fishes be blessed, don't worry, I'm going to compensate abundantly for these fishes. But that's the problem is can you master over life and death can you give a compensation. I remember my first spiritual teacher, he was old and I saw him using a fly swat. And I was at the point where my non-violence, I just heard about non-violence, and I was fanatic, I was like, you know, practicing non-violence in extreme ways. And then I saw one of my teachers swatting a fly. And I said, you are, why do you kill flies and so on, or mosquitoes or something, you know? And he said, I give them a blessing. I tell them, go ahead in your evolution. You left your body as a fly. Now you are dressed in No. Like there was a spiritual thought to it. If that thought is hypocrisy and lie or not, you don't know. But in the case of Jesus, almost everybody knows that there was probably no hypocrisy and lie because Jesus was not the kind of person that would live in a life of hypocrisy and lies. And as such, remember that this is a beautiful episode in which God gives himself. Jesus is the Lord of the birds and of the fishes. There is an episode where Jesus stops a storm and says, Oh! And the the storm stops in that minute, in that second, you know? Like, Jesus is the Lord of nature, is the Lord of everything. And, uh, of course, he calls some of the fishes and says, sorry, today you have to die, because Peter, who is higher than you on the scale of evolution, Peter has a need. And therefore, you go and die for Peter, and I am blessing you for your sacrifice. It's a beautiful understanding of how the divine consciousness works with animals, with human beings, with the nature, with all that. It's true that we, human beings, we mistreat the nature. The nature suffers because of our selfish and alienated activities. But at the level of Jesus, you can see this supreme ecology that, for God, is the left hand, the right hand, what moves from the right hand to the left hand. It's still the same. It's still the same. It's just nature doing, fulfilling its function in the way in which it was built. Ultimately, if you agree that this world may have been conceived by some intelligence, then you wouldn't like, you know, it's like the American modern television. Viewer discretion is advised because we are going to show some tough scenes and we don't want some sissy people that have no money to have some heart attack by watching our program, you know? And then even in National Geographic all well, this, when a tiger is or a lion is attacking a gazelle, I don't know if you've ever seen the raw scene of what happens, but when one of these big cats kills an animal, it's very ugly and it's very bloody and it's very cruel and it's not nice at all to see what's happening. And in National Geographic, they cut it so children would not see. But why shouldn't the children see it? Because God made it that way. God programmed lions to kill gazelles. That's the way the world in which we live. Uh, Can there be a planet, can we imagine a galaxy or a parallel universe in which that doesn't happen? Yes, I can see that there are worlds in which nonviolence is enacted. It is functioning in those worlds, and then there are no lions killing gazelles. Even Jesus preached it and he said, there will come a day when the lion will lie together with the lamb and there shall be no more killing. So even the planet Earth might become, in a million years, a place like that. But until that time comes, we are a planet where there is war, social violence, a lot of misery, and animals are killing animals shamelessly, and we are killing animals shamelessly, you know? And I remember I've seen some article today about some Thai association for animal rights and protection of the animals, you know? And the first thought which comes to my mind is what do they do about the pigs and cows and chickens that are slaughtered by the millions every day? Where are the rights of those animals ah. Because we eat them, and they are tasty, it doesn't matter, let them be killed, you know, as long as we satisfy our taste buds, it's okay to kill, and there is no society for protection of the animal. But of course, when it comes to a cat or a dog, we kind of start being very sensitive, like what's happening to that cat, to that dog? If you go a little bit east to Vietnam, they also go barbecue as well, no, nobody cares about eating cats and dogs in Vietnam or in parts of China or other places. So that's why I say it's so very relative and there is so much hypocrisy and there is so much lack of a universal view, an Ajna Chakra view like Buddha's view on compassion, on universal love, on these things. You can be sure that Jesus did have this universal consciousness, and universal love, and look that in his little universe with his uh, Jewish fishermen and so on, yeah, sacrificing animals in a universe where there is anyway a lot of sacrifice on a lot of levels, it just works that way. So it's beautiful that Jesus here performed a sort of a miracle coming from the heart. He, as God, asked the part of God to feed the other part of God, like fishes. This is your day where you die to sacrifice today for Peter and his people. And it was a double thing. It made Peter and those people happy. It gave food and they could pay the taxes, and it also gave credibility to Jesus as well. So it was like hitting two birds with the same stone that he did something which was pragmatically relevant in this way. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. So three of the apostles of Christ were from the same village and they were neighbors and partners in fishing, John and James and Peter himself. And um, this reaction is also beautiful. It shows a reflection at the level of the consciousness. When Moses saw God, when the prophets of old times saw God, when the Prophet Muhammad was in the presence of God via Gabriel and in other ways. Whenever people were in the presence of God in a direct way, when Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Tabor, Tabor, in today's Israel, the unanimous reaction is that people, normal people, they see something so big and so overwhelming, and at the same time they realize how unworthy they are, how small they are, how impure they are. To be confronted with that, that the, that the curtain should be pulled and that they should be shown a little bit of that glory, that most of their reactions is falling on their knees, falling to the ground and saying, I'm not worthy." Jesus does not a very obvious thing, like he didn't do some hocus focus, but those fishermen had fished in that lake for 20 years or more. They knew how fishing was going. And suddenly this guy says, go out again with me now, you know? and suddenly they come back full of fish. Overwhelmingly full. It's obvious that there is a supernatural force operating here, that something not linear, is involved in this. And Peter realizing this, having at least the common sense to realize this, he says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. So like, it's like, exactly like you are near the sun. And the sun is burning you. Peter says, if I stay too close to you, it's like I'm getting my wings burned. It's like the myth of Icarus. You know, that Icarus was trying to fly to the sun, the Greek myth, and he built himself wings made of wax. And as he got close to the sun, the wings melted because of the heat of the sun, and he fell and died. That's exactly the meaning of this myth. When you come close, you have to be pure. You have to be, for many people, coming too close to some spiritual things, turns into doom. Some of the things which happened last year in Agama, they show you exactly this. But for some people, it's a big mouthful. It's too much of a mouthful sometimes, and they choke on it. Peter has this common sense. He comes close and he sees some manifestation of Jesus. He realizes only God can do this kind of thing. Of course, it's not literally true. Maybe some incredibly strong shaman or something, could do uh, miraculous fishing. Ultimately, it's a paranormal power of communicating with the collective soul of the fishes and determining them to be sacrificed by offering them maybe something in exchange or something. It could be like the shamans did that when they went to hunt buffaloes or something. They were talking to the totemic soul of the buffaloes and said, we are coming because we need meat for the winter, so we are going to hunt 10 or 20 buffaloes. So in this way it's not that only Jesus, Jesus did it from the position of God in a loving, in a oneness way, in a monistic way, like He was the fishes, and He was the fisherman and He was God at the same time. But uh, so it's again, not only, but still, Peter said, either this guy is a shaman or he is God or whatever, he's a prophet of God. And then he was like, whoa, what was that? And his first reaction was, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Like, there are people who are even ashamed to be visited by gurus or prophets or in the case of Jesus, at the maximum level, because the first reaction is, I'm not worthy. I'm just a miserable... I've been not having a clean diet. I've not been fasting. I've not been praying. My morality and ethics is shit. Yesterday, I got angry, and I really, really hated some people and wished them dead. The day before yesterday, I beat my wife and kids. The day before, the day before yesterday, I don't know what else I told a lot of lies to just save my ass. The other day I've been sexually horny and maybe I have done something which is not so kosher or something you know and now I meet with Jesus and I, it's like I, the first thing in me is like go oh, away I'm not even worthy you know like I'm afraid, I'm so impure, I'm so incapable. I'm so unworthy, and I'm even a little bit afraid that this will burn me because I am unworthy and I'm in the presence of such greatness. Today, people very seldom have this feeling. People are shameless and saucy, and they think they are entitled, and they think they deserve everything. And if they would meet with Jesus on the street, I literally know people who have been my pupils in Agama at one time or another, would say, Hi, dude, how are you? Welcome back. Simon Peter would never talk to Jesus like this. You know, he is like, you know, he says, Lord, please go away from me. I am a sinful man. He sees his sin. He is not trying to cover the gap and say, Hi, hey, how are you? How are you today? Jesus is like, this is a lack of anahata, in the modern society, where people cannot be humble and they cannot realize these kinds of things. And uh, it's uh, one of the trademarks of modern times. But, and probably some people in his time, they treated Jesus like, Who's this dude? What do you want? We heard some weird things about him, and this and that. And of course, there were people who got on the other side and they beat him, they spit on him, they did all sorts. Not only the Roman soldiers, a part of the crowd was jeering at Jesus and spitting on him and hitting him while he was flogged and punished by the Roman Empire and eventually crucified. Even when he was on the cross, some idiots said, Hey, if you are the Son of God, why don't you just get off that cross like this? You know, it's you are just an imposter, a liar. No, you're not doing anything to defend yourself or something. So Uh, Here, at least, Peter shows that there was some heart, that there was something in him, and when he's confronted with it, he has this typically human reaction. But it's a typical human reaction for people that have common sense and humbleness. The people that don't have common sense and humbleness, they would go the other way around and be provoked or react in other negative ways. And so they were amazed, but this amazement went into the heart. And then Jesus, because his reaction proved him to be a superior man, this was the way of reacting of a man who was, he was a fisherman, he was illiterate, but in his heart he had something noble. He was a (coughs) person spiritual reaction. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, from now on you will fish man." So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. This is how you go from illiterate fishermen to having a Basilica named after you in Vatican in the middle of Rome. So you just are being called up to arms, come follow And Jesus tells him, you have spent 40-something years fishing fish, now you are going to fish human beings. Which is a very interesting attitude and parable as well. So Jesus is going around fishing men, and of course women, we are talking about humans in general. He fishes them. Realize what a mentality that is." that Jesus says, people are blind, people are ignorant, some people are under the power of the demons and of the devil, and I'm going and fishing them up. In a similar way, 15 centuries later, Teresa of Avila, she confessed, a great Spanish Roman Catholic saying she confessed that in the night, She was going in hell in her dream. She had lucid dreaming. And in her lucid dreaming, she could go down to hell and spot some souls which were suffering in hell. And she started praying for them and calling them out of hell. And that she managed sometimes to bring souls out of hell. And because of this, she was sick in bed for 40 years. Like in the night, she was saving souls. And in the daytime, she was sick and agonizing in her body, to pay the karma for saving those souls from hell. And, but what was she doing? She was fishing souls from hell. So, Jesus thinks that you should be fished. That if you are not already 100% on his side, which means on the side of God and spiritual evolution, then you have to be fished, and ultimately, all of us who do spiritual work, we are fishing souls. Tonight, I'm fishing souls here in this hall, that's what I do, and all the yoga teachers who don't teach monkey yoga and just simple gymnastics, they are fishing for souls. That's why we are not happy with monkey yoga. Because monkey yoga, nobody fishes any soul. People are just stretching your loins, you know. If that you think is the Dharma of a yoga teacher, feel welcome to do so. But we who have read this also and took some lessons from it, we know that our real mission is to fish souls. If necessary, we will help you to catch some fish so you feel good. Like for example, some of you come and you have a problem with your stomach and with your liver. And we teach you yoga for six months, Vamanadauti and whatever, and you feel much better. And then you feel grateful that yoga has saved your health, and you decide to go deeper to investigate your spiritual nature. So I, in a tricky way, have fished your soul. And sometimes I'm losing Yourself, I think I've fished you, and then after three years, you just go and throw yourself into all sorts of stupid things, and it's like, okay, I thought I had fished this one for God. It didn't quite work. But this is what we are into. You don't realize, because you are the object of this, and it might even sound slightly offensive that somebody has this kind of view on the world. And that's why here we are having a big war of who gets who we are in the twilight zone in the crossfire and it's a battle between light and darkness and the question is who will get your soul in this life the good guys or the bad guys people don't think like this every time when I reveal this aspect of existence to people people hate it people dislike it for it. Many people hate the idea of God, like God being some cosmic consciousness that is alive, not the God is dead of Nietzsche, not that dead God who is scratching his own ass and never moves a finger for you, a living presence, God who is with the ten cosmic powers interacting with you and your life right now. And people are afraid of the idea of God, and in yoga we slowly, slowly manage to open people up to this. But people are even more afraid of the opposite, and they don't even want to think about it, that whenever you say that there are forces of light and angels, you automatically acknowledge that they are also, in parallel, Forces of darkness and demons. And they are not sleeping. They are acting all the time, as the more perceptive of you could see it, but even in recent events and so on. They try their best to do, and they try their best to confuse you and get your soul. It's not about me. Many people say, oh, Swami Jiyaraji, egocentric, you say that if people are not liking yoga or agama, they lost their soul. I've seen people going away from yoga gurus in my life, and they have gone to some other brand of spirituality, and when they have gone to that brand of spirituality, they doubled up their efforts. I knew people who were doing four or five hours of yoga per day. They didn't like their guru for some human reasons. They went the way of yoga education and then they jumped into a Christian monastery and there they did nine hours of prayer per day instead of five hours of yoga per day. And their diet became much more tough. The restriction, the fasting list. Then it's obvious that you are not manipulated by demons. So it's not about me. I gave the stories with Agama and with me especially what happened recently simply because they are still very present in people's minds and many people want explanations and many people want, uh, you know, to understand and so on. And then I'm telling you, even these are an example of spiritual tests and what happened to people. They don't come from me. And if I would see somebody who said, Agama is a dubious school, Swami is a dirty old man, an asshole, or whatever. And uh, you know what? I cannot live in that doubt. So I'm going, I was in Agama with all my heart and doing three hours of yoga and meditation every day. And I kind of got really disturbed. So I moved, I'm going now to Amaji in India. Or I'm going to, I don't know, to some Sufi Darga in Turkey. And there I'm doing six hours of spiritual practice per day because I'm afraid that maybe the demons may play games with me, and therefore I'm kind of upgrading my spiritual practice to make sure that I'm not going from something strong to something weaker. I'm going from something strong to something stronger. That's the way to make sure that there is no uh, hanky panky that there is no dirty involvement in all this. Then I would stay sure. This demonstrates aspiration, lucidity, this demonstrates that somebody really wants. And if I, personally, am not a worthy person, and I don't manage to inspire trust or other things to people, so be it, that is my imperfection, and that is my lack of ability. That's enough, but when you speak about it, you have to look at it from your standpoint not from my standpoint, from your standpoint. What does it mean? And thus, we are in the business of fishing souls, which is not a business at all. The money has absolutely nothing to do with it. And in this fishing of souls, you have to have the humbleness to realize that some of you are very determined And some of you, even before coming to Agama, have taken very clear decisions about your life. Some of you, after you came to Agama, you got more aspiration and more clarity. And you have taken very clear decisions about your life. And some of you, accept it freely because there is nothing shameful about it, are in the twilight zone. Some of you are in a cloud. As Rumi puts it in a "Come out of this cloud," you know? because some of you are in a cloud. You are undecided, confused, not knowing what to do. Uh, half of you wants to do this, and half of you doesn't want to do this. One step forward, one step backward, hesitating and not knowing, and so. on. And again, it's not about Agama or me. It's about a general thing that there is that thing. When I was 20-something, 21 years old or something, I knew already my life belongs to God, 100%. In this life, I'm not going to do business, I'm not going to raise a family, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do spiritual practice and then karma yoga, selfless service for others. That I knew already when I was 20 years old, when I was 21 years old, the decision had been taken. And I have tried to live my life accordingly since that day. But some of you, and again, there's not a shame to be in the time when you don't know, when I was 19 years old, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. You are in that stage, and therefore you have to, but you are fishable. You are fishes in a pond. And let's see whose hook you are biting. If you are biting the hook of Jesus, or if you are biting the hook of the other side. Like with the Jedi in Star Wars. You go on the dark side of the force, or you go on the light side of the force. So in this way, uh, this is a very important view, because from the standpoint of Jesus, And then the Apostles got empowered in the same way, they became fishers of men, fishers of souls. At this point, Jesus is fishing them. And they will go through a hard time. And then they will get enlightened at the day of the Pentecost, 49 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. They will reach Samadhi and they will become enlightened beings. And from that day on, they will work for the benefit of humanity. Most of them going in the footsteps of Jesus. Out of eleven, out of twelve apostles, eleven were murdered. Most of them in torturing, painful ways. Only one of the twelve apostles, and that one is John, only John is the one who did not get killed by anybody and he lived 101 years or something like this in some Greek island, in the island of Patmos, if I remember correctly, in the Greek archipelago. So, uh, remember that from the standpoint of spiritual masters, from the standpoint of the Dalai Lama and of the 17th Karmapa, from the standpoint of Rumi and from the standpoint of Ramakrishna, and from the standpoint of Teresa of Avila and Francis of Assisi, you are fishable. Your soul is subject to a contest and you yourselves don't realize how important that contest is and how acute that contest is and you live in a state of indifference. Especially today when Kali Yuga is so advanced And uh, there is so much confusion of emotional type and others in the younger generations. In the United States, a quarter of the children that are born are presenting symptoms of autism, just to give an example of how fucked up the world is becoming. Uh, In this world, you look around and you see that people don't even ask themselves questions. What should I do with my life? Is there a God? Is there a darkness? Should I give myself to the light? Should I give myself to the darkness? People don't even ask those questions. They are like blindfolded and walking through a swamp, carelessly, just not, not even taking into account such an important, such an important issue. How important this issue is if your soul is fished by Shambhala, or if your soul is fished by the devils. Temporarily, nothing is forever. But if it goes for 25,000 years, that's a pretty long time if you make a detour in your evolution and you take the wrong decisions and you suffer. That's why, from a spiritual standpoint, these things are not politically correct. People like Peter, they have the right To look around and say, who I want to fish? Who can I fish? Who would be fished? And it's like, but aren't we all equal? No. That's an illusion of modern democracy. Maybe socially, it's okay to have social justice and social democracy, that all people are equal in a social way. Like if you go to trial or if you go to this, then everybody is equal in front of the law and all that kind of thing. But believe me, it's only arrogance and blindness if any one of you thinks that you are equal to Ramakrishna, because you are not. You are not equal to Yogananda. You are not, and Yogananda is fishing. Yogananda is the fisherman, and you are the souls that are being fish. Those that are saved, like Buddha, they have another status in this universe, in this thing, and their job is to transmit this enlightenment and to see, is any one of you wanting to get out of confusion? Is any one of you motivated enough to actually do something? Like, would you be agreeing to stop reading your Facebook non-stop and to do two hours of meditation every day? Would you actually be willing to make some sacrifices and focus a little bit, stop being cowardly, stop being you know, then those are the souls that would be fished by Ramakrishna or by Yogananda or by Peter here. So it's very important to uh, understand this thing Because this simple language, which is here, it shows us a very, it's a rabbit hole, which is very deep. It's very deep. You know, it's like we are recruiting. There is the army of God, and I'm the military recruiting service. Who would like to join the army of God? It's like it's black and white. Jesus made things very black and white. If you are not with me, you are against me. Period, he says. You know, so who wants to be in the boat of Jesus? It's a rhetoric thing, I don't need a show of hands. But it's, it's a question which I am addressing to your soul. In whose boat do you want to be? Which king do you want to serve? Why do you need to fish souls? Because the souls have to be fished. That's how the world is. People are in the twilight zone. People are undecisive. And, I am trying to fish souls, and some forces of darkness try to stop me from fishing souls. When we had this trouble last year in Agama, the people were not interested that I, personally, because I'm a dirty old man and an asshole and whatever they think about me, that I should go away. Because I said, it's fine you have a person of an immaculate reputation, like Maha, Ananda, she can be the leader of the school and now go away and write science fiction books or do something else. Just meditate in my place for many, many months and years. You know, it would make me the happiest thing in the world. But people wanted to destroy Maha because the whole point was to stop Agama. Agama must stop teaching. A gum must stop teaching. You could hear the grinding of the teeth of the demons in this. This is where you could pull the curtain and see what the real stakes were. The real stakes were not, uh, you, we don't like you, you are unworthy, we don't trust you. Let's have somebody else who is a wonderful person. No, the person was, you should all die. You should all disappear. You should all stop this thing. Because, We are in a match, and now the ball is in my court tonight. You are here with me, and I'm working hard on fishing your soul. And then when you go to the full moon party, and you smoke your marijuana, then the other side is fishing your soul. And when you go to a music concert of Metallica, the other side is fishing your soul. So we are playing ping pong like this, and you are the ping pong ball. Until you will make a firm stand, and a firm decision, and your determination will be tested once, twice, three times, until one day you will receive a badge which says, unshakable. This one cannot be turned anymore. This one will not turn coats anymore. This one is 100% in the boat where they are supposed to be. Remember, meditate on this. Because, you see, in the yoga texts, we don't have information. The yogis didn't bother to speak about this, but Jesus does, even though obliquely and implicitly, he does. So, decide what your faith is. Remember, taking a decision which is wrong is better than taking no decision. Better. At least join some satanistic club and tra- practice satanism. You will burn bad in hell, and then you will never practice satanism again when you have learned that lesson. But do something. The Norwegian said this proverb, which says the real shipwreck is not the one who shipwreck, shipwrecked with a ship, but the one who never went on a travel. You don't go on a ship because you are afraid you might shipwreck then you have just wasted your life. You live an empty life. Take a decision. Make a leap. Try your strength. Do something really strong. Live a life for an idea. Take an idea and say, this is the idea which governs my life. Like, I want to live a life for non-violence, for truthfulness, for Jesus, for God, for whatever. Choose something which is spiritual, Preferably, you can, again, you can choose the dark side as well. I hope you will not, but some people do. Some people do. And uh, when your ego is being provoked, you might get so angry. Remember, there was a king who tried to kill Buddha. Like I understand that they tried to kill Jesus, because Jesus was such a provoker. Jesus was such a non com, but Buddha, Buddha, Buddha who is an intellectual, a metaphysician, Buddha, what is He He says life is full of pain. Here are the noble truths, the four truths. There is pain in life, and when you look at old people, sick people, dead people, you see that there is life, pain, and that this pain nobody really avoids it. And then there is a way out of pain. And then, these are the Four Noble Truths. Who can be opposed to Buddha? Well, there were. Several people hated Buddha. There was a king who tried to murder him two or three times. To murder him. To murder Buddha. But Buddha was just going around and saying, people are full of superstitions and this and that, and people should live a good life, and it doesn't matter what you believe in, it matters what you do create a good karma and all that common sense and beautiful, noble, pure things. And the people wanted to kill Buddha. Why? Because of this. There is a war going out there and even Buddha is fighting this war in his own way. And that although he doesn't maybe speak about it in the same way. And thus, things are... very polarized in this way. And, again, my advice is this. Make choices, even when you are afraid that it might be the wrong choice. It's better to make a wrong choice and then to fix it, rather than making no choice and living a life which is unfinished. Living a life which is nothing. It's like, then then you die, and then you say, I wasted another life. I didn't do anything in this one as well. In my previous life, I was a peasant in a French village in the 17th century. What did I do? I just raised goats and fucked up my life. All I did was just live an anonymous, inconsequential life in a village. I had three kids and two of them died of the plague and whatever, you know? That's what I did, that's what I used my life for, you know? And now, in the 21st century, I passed up again. I just did, and I thought it was very important that I spend five hours on Facebook every day. In the, in the end, when I die, it is Laleshvari or Vata Narayana, I forgot, to Faladeva, one of these great tantric poets of Kashmir, who say, in one of their poems, they say, venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva and they say, oh, you of little knowledge. The rules of grammar will be of no importance when you die. When you die, that's when the truth is being revealed and it's too late to do something if you haven't done it before. So he says some people, he makes fun, it's a very subtle sense of humor. He says the rules of grammar like, what, who cares about the rules of grammar when you die? You say, but all my life I have respected the rules of grammar scrupulously. Good. you still die and go to hell, or go into some confused place anyway. The rules of grammar will not be important when you die. Venerate Shiva, venerate Shiva, well, which for him means God, Shiva is God. Venerate Shiva, that's the only thing which will save your ass, save your soul not just going around and saying, yeah, but I did that, I was very good at this or that. In the big picture, those things mean nothing. It's dust, shadows and dust, and they disperse. So, focus on the things which are not shadows and dust. And because we have a few minutes left, I'll go to the next, still we are in paragraph, in chapter 5, Whichever way we number them in the Bible. And our story continues. He recruited Simon. He just recruited Simon in the army of God. Guess what? He had a good intuition. Simon Peter was a good soldier in the army of God. He, had, he betrayed Jesus when he was a little puppy. But later he died like a hero. He died like a super vira. He died, like, inimaginably, and today he is remembered, you know. his whole lineages of religion based on Peter. While Jesus was in one of the towns, he was going around in the villages there, a man came around who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This again, this is a soul which has been fished implicitly. Because another one who has leprosy or whatever, he looks at Jesus passing by, surrounded by men and women who are pumped up, you know, ecstatic almost, that they walk with their rabbi, that they walk with their master. No? And Somebody would be cynical and envious. He would say, sure, you're just going around and not caring about people like me and so on. Fuck you all, I hate you. May you all have leprosy in ten years, you know? There are people who have the dark side attitude. Their soul is already in hell. What did it take to this man? I've seen so many people being in pain. In pain. Physical pain, disease, whatever, emotional pain, and others. Most of the people that I see like this, when they are in pain, they become like wild animals. They want to hurt you. They become aggressive. They are talking nasty. They, if they would meet with Jesus, they would spit on Jesus and say, yeah, sure, you are healthy the Uh, Of course, it's good for you to talk, but let me see you in my shoes. Like people would have the wrong attitude. This man is an example. How many others may he have met? Leprosy, because of the poor conditions of hygiene and poor sanitary conditions in those days, leprosy has been one of the worst things in the world. Until 1940s or 50s, when finally the modern medicine discovered that leprosy can be healed with penicillin. It just takes penicillin to stop leprosy. This leprosy, which in those days was so big, and people committed suicide because of it, and it was like leprosy was one of the, it was like as bad as the plague or as bad as the devil in the world of those days until 1950. And then in 1950, do you hear about leprosy anymore? Very little here and there. You just take penicillin, and it's 95% gone. And therefore, it's funny that humanity lived. this is how you see the ignorance. The fact that there is an ignorance, and you pay karma. Nobody could have saved the people as long as medicine and technology have not reached a certain level, where that's not a problem. Does it mean that we have no more problems? No. Humanity has probably an even worse karma than in the time of Jesus. But the problem has moved somewhere else. The problem is in Facebook addiction, in fake news, in collective hysteria, in other and other manifestations where the society is getting completely uh, tortured by it. This man, somehow he had managed to keep like he heard, uh, look, there comes a guy and people say he's a sort of a prophet. And if I would be cynical with leprosy all over and I already lost three fingers in my ear because of leprosy, I would say, yeah, yeah, fuck him with his prophecy and everything. Yeah, people can afford to listen to all these hippie prophets and uh, go, know. but if they are in my boots, they have other other fish to fry, they have other emergencies, you know, like I would be really negativistic and angry, you know, there would be a lot of anger and frustration in me because I have been dealt such a bad card play in this life, I'm bored with leprosy and I can't do anything about it and everybody runs away from me and I can't even drink from the same wells and springs and so on, like people are completely paranoid and they hate me and they run away from me and so on. Because also these leper people, they also looked horribly. sometimes. They looked really scary, awful, you know? And this man, although he is in this, somebody says, look, there comes in town a guy called Jesus and they say he's a prophet. And he believes, somehow he clicks on the right side. (coughs) He says, you know what? If this man is the real deal, maybe he can stop it for me. Like Rumi, when he goes to Anahata, there is one of his poems where he says, uh, My friends have turned into enemies, and I am surrounded by strangers. But I am in the house of mercy, my soul is a place of prayer, I want help, I ask for mercy. <laughs> this is the position of Anahata Chakra. This leper, man, he has a big Anahata chakra and therefore he reacts in the right way. He doesn't react with anger and frustration going to Jesus and or running away from Jesus. I didn't want to even see that guy. Yeah, yeah, I've seen lots of people who claim they are gurus and prophets and this. That's just another idiot coming by. And meanwhile, I'm carrying my leprosy and slowly, slowly dying with him. No? <coughs> he opens his heart. And he says, I ask for mercy. If anybody can help me, please help me. He's open. And that saves the day. (coughs) That saves his life. Because he goes to Jesus, open, like a child. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say you should make me clean. He says, maybe you are not. He's so humble that he acknowledges that not all the prayers are answered immediately when you won and how you won. People say, oh, save my child, and your child dies anyway. How many children didn't die in the last 2,000 years? How many parents didn't pray for their children not to die? They died. And therefore, you know, they people know that you pray but sometimes your prayer is not answered to, because your prayer is not pure, because you don't have power of the prayer and you don't know how to pray, because there is some extraordinarily intense karma involved in that case. And even though you pray, your prayer is not strong enough to compensate for that karma. So it will happen anyway, or other such things. This man He's humble even in this. He says, Jesus, I kind of trusted in you. See, instead of being negativistic, I trusted in you. So now please heal me. He doesn't come with a cheat. He doesn't come uh, with uh, entitlement and demanding of Jesus. He says, Lord, I know that if you will, you like it is. I also know that it's possible that you will say, I will not. You are not in my flock. You are not my business. I have nothing to do with you. It's not the right moment in the cosmos or in your life. It's not this. God is taking a nap right now and he doesn't want to help. Uh, you know, all the people, all the Israeli people in your group are condemned to die anyway. No, You can have a 50,000 excuses and simply say it's not going to happen right now. So that's why his attitude is perfect. This man illustrates how you should be in the presence of spirituality. You go and visit the Dalai Lama or whoever you think is a super spiritual person, one of the few spiritual people that, according to you, are still living on the face of this earth. You go go like the leper. That's why Jesus loved this kind of thing. Because each one of them becomes archetypal. Each one of them becomes a a role model. Each one of them becomes an example. Like That's how you should approach Jesus. This man comes to Jesus in the madness of Palestine and in the madness of his own disease. The disease is troubling your mind because it's a karma and you don't think clearly. And this man still manages to come with one of the best attitudes, and he he falls to the ground like he is humble all the way and he begs him, he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's leprosy, remember, it's not a joke. In those days, it was one of the horrors of the old world. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, he said, I am willing. Remember, Jesus says, I am God. Therefore, what Jesus does is what God does. And therefore, God says, if you approach me like this, then I am willing. Such a person deserves to be immediately. That's the right attitude. There may be, again, And you say, what if Jesus was three days late? Sure, this man was still prostrating to the ground and saying, if you are willing, you can clean it. Realize, no, we all say, but it's just word. You say, God is omnipotent, like Almighty. Any one of you has a problem? Whatever, health problem, emotional problem, financial problem, whatever. And it has not been solved. But you can lie down on the ground and say, Lord, I know that if you are willing, you can solve my problem. So why hasn't it been solved until now? Because you are not addressing it properly. You are not asking with the right attitude. Maybe you feel entitled, My like, God, oh, you have to help me. No, God doesn't have to help you. It's just your ego which makes you feel so important. And so this man was crushed. His ego had been so humiliated by this disease. In Ayurveda, the doctors say that leprosy goes from one life to the next. So maybe this guy had leprosy for five lifetimes in a row, and this was the last one. And then he finally meets with God in some village. And he says, you know, I'm so crushed. I don't ask for one, I just ask for mercy. I know that you can. And I know that if you won't do it today, It's still okay, I cannot twist your arm in any way. But I know that if you want so please, please, I'm asking. Maybe I'm asking a million times. Until one day I ask the right way. It's about asking the right way, not asking in the wrong way. Like, let's see, can you take it from me? You are just challenging God. Your ego doesn't even have faith for it and says, let's see if you can just do it. That's not prayer. That's not humbleness. That does not address the divine nature in you and in the universe. So, Jesus, who was playing God, he was, it was in the green for him. And he immediately touched the man and he says, I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left it. All of us would like to be there to just witness this event. Because it's like madness. It's like you can't even imagine how it is. Leprosy has deep physiological causes and sometimes even causes related with DNA and other things. How do you see that somebody touches somebody and says, be clean? And you say, then the leprosy stopped. It's like science fiction, right? It's like, whoa, you know, it's like, who can do that? How would it look? You know, I would like to have been a fly on the wall and have witnessed this event, you know. It would give me so much to just witness such an event. And then Jesus ordered him, strong word, don't tell anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to that. Jesus is playing so humble that he even simply says, don't say, I did it. Just go to the priest and pretend you are making offerings to the temple that way Moses had ordered and then say, oh, God has healed me. And the priest will be very happy. You see, from time to time, God is strong, is acting. You come, you made offers to the temple, like Jesus wanted to give the merit and the glory for this to the priests, to the temple. Like he simply said, don't say, I did it. Just go and pretend you give something to the temple, pray, and then shout, hallelujah, I'm healed. And don't even mention me. Like Jesus doesn't want any glory in this. He's completely humble. And he simply says, no, just, he is ready to give all the glory to the Jewish temple of his day. So, so much he is doing the work of God, because it's not about him, for him. Yet, the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed by of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and pray. It was inevitable, this was the curse of Jesus, that his fame spread and spread. His fame spread so much that eventually he had a lot of enemies. So it's like by parallelism again I come back to Agama. When Agama was a small place, nobody manifested any hate against it because it was insignificant when it went beyond a certain level, we have to endure a lot of lack and a lot of negativity for it, simply because we have a faith. And yes, many people got healed of a lot of things in the school without me going and touching them or something, because our methodology is not some Christian faith healing, our methodology is called yoga, and yoga also performs amazing things and people got a lot of benefits. So, Jesus was trying to play low, anonymous, karma yoga, all glory be to God, I didn't do this, you know, it's like, just go and say God did it for you, (coughs) in the temple, and even then, it was inevitable, it was happening. And next week, when I will continue this speech, because I'm stopping right here, Next week, uh, I'm continuing from this little statement. It just tells a story about how a guy was killed of leprosy and what Jesus did, and he tried to be anonymous, and it didn't really work, and people came more and more, which became a burden and a curse, like in the end. And the author, Luke, he tells us a little thing which is, like, related but it also opens another door. He says, but Jesus often, often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is something which everybody who has been in spirituality knows. The spiritual people often need to go alone and to do their thing, to have their space, to have their loneliness. Even in a school that teaches Tantra you have partnership, you have relationship and yet people prefer to very often to live separately if financially it's possible for them so that each and every one of them can withdraw in their room and have their space. The spiritual people need to be alone often. They need their space and they are not Desperate, like Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Of course, if he was in lonely places, they don't know exactly what he did. He could have said, and Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and masturbated. You don't know really what he did, but that's what he told them he's doing, that's what they assumed he was doing, and of course, he was not masturbating, of course, he was praying, meditating, doing things. Because even for Jesus, he needs to recharge his batteries. He cannot rub shoulders with everybody all the time because then it's not quality time. It's like two people who spend too much time together and then it's not quality time. It is a, there is a beautiful scene, just to conclude, in the historical heroic movie El Cid, where El Cid with his wife They have sex probably 10 times in their life and she lives in a monastery and he's on a battlefield for 20 years and so on. Like they have a very heroic, very self-sacrificing relationship after in the beginning it was so difficult for them to have a relationship. And when he's about to die, he tells to his wife a great truth. He says, you know, now looking back at our life, like they have been together, I don't know, 20 days in 20 years. That's how much they have been together, really physically. And he says, I don't think that we have got anything less than any other people who are lovers or married for this in this life. Because he is right. Those 20 days are the quality time which builds the soul. All the other days from the 20 years are low quality time in which you do nothing. You just chit-chat, you just waste time, you just do a lot of stupid things, you take each other for granted, if the relationship deteriorates and falls apart, so the essence, the goal in it, is exactly that. It's not quantitative, it's qualitative. Jesus knows perfectly what this quality is, and we'll talk a little bit about this quality of learning to be alone, of learning to recharge your batteries spiritually. Very, very important. Enough of this. These were a few ideas coming from this paragraph about actions and words of Jesus, and I'm happy that we're back on track with this, and uh, in the coming weeks, if everything goes okay, we will continue with analyzing and revealing things from a yogic standpoint about what Jesus says and does. Thank you all for being patient and listening to all these things. With this we have finished, and remember, satsangs are not with questions and answers. Satsang is a one-way discourse, which I'm doing once a week. If any one of you, from such things, and of course from the rest of it, you get questions, remember that every Tuesday uh, there are questions and answers. And on the calendar it says that it's done by an advanced teacher, but in fact, whenever I'm present in Kopangan and not sick or something, I do it myself. It's just written like this by the administration because uh, there were people who were threatening to come and disrupt our activities and throw rotten eggs or something at us in Agama. So for not producing a scandal, the outside calendar was neutral like this, like an advanced teacher does this Q&A. Until now, the last two weeks, I did it. And whenever I'm available, when I'm not in a workshop or something, I do it. And that's why there can be a continuation. If you think about these things, or again, other subjects which are there, remember, I also do answer questions. I'm not avoiding the questions, but not on Thursdays. On Thursdays, it's just a one-way thing from me to you. On Tuesdays, it can be ping pong with q and Again, let us stop for tonight. Thank you.